Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. Um, this episode is going to focus heavily on the trades made by Michael Elias uh, before Monday's trade deadline. And the end result sees the Orioles sell some, trade away some of the players on their major league roster and get some intriguing prospects in return, highlighted by the deal that sent Michael Givens to Colorado in exchange for infielder Taron Vabra, uh, first baseman Tyler Nevin, and a player to be named later. Uh, they swung another deal on Monday, trading Miguel Castro to New York Mets for minor league left-hander Kevin Smith and a player to be named later. Tom Malone was also dealt on Sunday, going for two players to be named later to the Atlanta Braves. Uh, remember that players who are not in the organization's 60-man player pool cannot be traded during the season, so we expect that once uh, the 2020 season ends, we will find out who the players to be named later are in these trades along with some other deals the Orioles made um, earlier this season, including the one that sent Hector, Hector Velasquez to Houston and Richard Blyer to Miami. Uh, we're going to discuss the trades. We're also going to look at Ryan Mountcastle's continuing production in the major leagues. And Keegan Aiken uh, made his first major league start on Monday at Toronto slash Buffalo uh, and turned in a pretty solid performance. So we're going to get into all of that, but first... We'll start with the trades. If you visit BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com right now, uh, my co-hosts both have new pieces on the site. Bob Phelan with his 3-up, 3-down weekly column. And Nick Stevens with a breakdown of the trades for Michael Givens and Tom Malone. And that's exactly where we're going to start on the show. Uh, Nick, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on both of those trades? A-plus work from Michael Elias. Both of these deals were were pretty awesome trades, in my opinion. Um, I think just starting with the Tommy Malone deal for two players to be named later, 2020 trades, it doesn't player to be named later doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be some guy on, on the Dominican Summer League roster somewhere. Uh, you know, with, like you said, only being able to trade guys in your six-man player pool. But I think in this particular instance, those two player to be named later are going to be guys in the low, low minors from the Atlanta Braves. Uh, but still, this is Tommy Malone was a guy who I think this trade is going to be something similar to the Andrew Kashner return that we saw last year. But Tommy Malone was a guy added on a minor league deal 
the Orioles really lucked out with that strong first half or first half of the season performance from him. And to get two young players back for him, uh, I think is a phenomenal deal. Uh, it's, it's great that Mike Elias was able to do that. And it seemed, I remember seeing something that apparently the Braves were interested in Malone right after Mike Soroka went down to injury at, at the very beginning of the season, which is surprising because, you know, Tommy Malone had what one kind of really rough opening day start. Um, and that was it. But you know, he turned it around. A uh, guy that can go four or five innings for you, get a bunch of strikeouts uh, with that changeup was fun to watch. Seemed like a great guy. But, uh, you know, if you're able to get two lottery tickets in return, uh, I make that trade 10 out of 10 times. And then, you know, we saw what he did in Philadelphia last night for the Braves. So unfortunately for him, it's his Braves career is off to a rocky start. But the Tommy Malone trade, I think A plus work right there. The fact that you're able to turn Malone into something, great work. Yeah, and speaking of rocky starts, Michael Givens gets traded to Colorado. That was uh that was an exciting trade to see play out. I liked um that Elias, like Nick said, he's he's shown that he's able to hold out to maximize the value of these guys that he's getting rid of. And I didn't think that we could get uh a two top fifteen, top twenty prospects plus a player to be named later for Michael Givens who's a reliever who's not even pitching in the eighth or ninth inning mostly this year uh, with only a, a year and a month of control left. Uh, Phil Nevin, the first baseman slash third baseman, I think Elias said he's going to start out the next season at AAA as their starting first baseman. Um, so more pressure on Chris Davis to perform. Honestly, my theory is this trade is kind of going to be the one that really pushes Davis to get released in the off season or early in spring training next year. I think once they see if the schedule is going to be fully played out or if they can save a little bit of money by, you know, if the season shortened a little bit again from coronavirus, I think it's going to be time with Mancini, hopefully coming back. Nevin at first base and triple a Mountcastle Diaz being ready. It just, they're running out of places to hide Chris Davis and hopefully that journey's coming to an end, but the best player I, th- I think we got Fangraphs has him at number seven in our system already is Taron Vavra. I think he's a guy who could be the starting second baseman as soon as next year, pushing Alberto to third base. Really like how the, both of these guys have great walk rates. They don't strike out a ton. Uh, seems like Vavra can play all over, all over the infield. Nevin could even play a little corner outfield. So just more versatility, some walk, some on-base profiles with some power upside, at least in Nevin. He's got good raw power. Hasn't really translated into games yet. And another player to be named later. You can't beat it. And like Nick said, two lottery tickets for Tommy Malone <laughs> at this point. You got you to gotta make that move whenever you can. Yeah, I'm going to uh, give some numbers here on Vavra. Last season, he was at low A, Asheville, batted 318, 409, 489, finished with an 899 OPS. Uh, 10 homers, 52 RBIs. That was good enough to win South Atlantic League MVP award. Um, He was an all-star there last year and had been an all-star the year before when he was at short season A Boise right after being drafted in the third round by the Rockies. The one thing I like about Vavra is that he's the kind of player that you don't see a lot of in the Orioles farm system, which is a guy with good strikes, uh, has a good judgment in the strike zone, not necessarily going to bring a lot of power, but the on-base numbers are so good and the walk rate is so good that you look at that and you feel like that is going to translate to higher levels. Whereas I feel like often when we're discussing a prospect uh, in the Orioles system, particularly towards the higher end of it, it's 
They have good raw power, but the strikeout numbers are a little high. Um, that had been the book on Ryan Mountcastle uh, when he was coming up, and although he's showing a little bit of improvement, Jory's still kind of out there. That had been the book on Austin Hayes. Favre, though, is different than that. I think this is a guy who's going to get on base at a high clip. Um, the walk rate is good, and he's going to have a good feel for the strike zone. Defensively, from some reports I was reading, it seems like second base is going to be where he ends up. But if you have a second baseman that hits from the left side, can get on base at a high clip, and as Bob mentioned, maybe that gives the Orioles some flexibility with Hondra Alberto, uh, perhaps moving him to third base. That's a win. And then Nevin, I think, addresses one thing that had become an issue in the Orioles' farm system, which is, although they're deep at first base at the major league level, they really aren't at the minor league level. So at a minimum, Nevin is a starting first baseman at AAA next year. Um, he can play a couple of different spots. There's still some questions about where he ends up. But if the end result is a right-handed bat that has some raw power, can go in and out between first base and left field, you're looking at maybe another Christian Walker, a guy that had been in the Orioles system. So I think it's something with Nevin that's a good wild card pick because he fills an immediate need in the farm system, and there's still room there to develop and maybe be, at a minimum, a quality part-time player. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you guys on all those, both Tyler Nevin and Vavra there. I think Nevin, um, someone, like you mentioned, can play multiple positions. So he's more of a wild card here. Uh, you know, The raw power, like you said, Bob hasn't translated into game power yet. But Michael Ice was pretty complimentary of him. I think it was today's broadcast. Uh, had high praise for him. Uh, it's someone who, in five seasons, he's been a professional baseball player. And he's only played in 366 games. So that's not very many. Last season was his first season where he played more than 100 games. I think he had 128, but he played in 130 games last year with the Hartford Yard Goats uh, in the Eastern League. And, and you read off some of those numbers there, the high walk rate, uh, which is great. He's an Arizona Fall League batting title. He won back in 2018. Like your dad's Phil Nevin. So, I mean, who I believe is with the Yankees now as a coach. So, I mean, that, that speaks volumes of him right there. Uh, both these guys come from baseball families with huge backgrounds. So that you love to see that. Um, I did see something, it was a, a baseball prospectus scouting report pretty recently that it was kind of brutal on Tyler Nevin, though, where it said he should probably start preparing for a career in the KBO, which kind of took me back a little bit. Um, he does seem like a guy who could go to the KBO and hit 30 home runs, but, you know, again, like you said, Zach, the minor leaguers, there, there are no first basemen down in the minor leagues, uh, and, and so Nevin fills that void. Vaver is someone who I, I do really, really like. Um, there's a path for him at second base. Like you said, I, we can go down like a two-hour rabbit hole of should Ryland Bannon move to third base? Is Rio Ruiz the guy at third base anymore? Uh, do you want to split Bannon and Alberto at third base and have Vavra play second base maybe next year? But that's a great problem that, that we're going to have next year, and he's a Another one of those guys comes from a Power 5 conference, Big Ten, a lot of success there. Um, even if Vavra's floor is that of a utility guy and Nevin is a quad A type guy who comes up for here and there, I mean, Michael Givens could implode tomorrow. And again, it's a relief pitcher. There's no really no bad trade when you're getting rid of a relief pitcher here. So, And you get a player to be named later, icing on the cake right there. Absolutely. And one thing I think that's important to note here is Colorado is not exactly known for developing their prospects very well in the minor league level. So say we get these guys into our alternate site at Bowie, we hook them up to the K-Vests, we get all these 
you know, Sig Mydell and Matt Blood's guys on them and can really develop them over the next, this season, off season, spring training next year. Maybe we can make the most out of them even more so than they're already projected. So I think that's important. And uh, as far as Vavra, maybe he could be like a, a Kevin Biggio type where he gets on base at a great rate, just flipped the power and the contact rates where Biggio doesn't con- uh, hit for much average, but he has some power. Maybe Vavra can be the guy that hits for average with a little bit of power in there, but walks a good rate. Yeah, that, that's a, actually a, a reasonable comp, I think. Um, Biggio, for me, has kind of been the guy that's flown under the radar for the Blue Jays. He's been overshadowed by Bissett and Guerrero Jr., but the fact is that as a role player, and even a little bit more than that, Biggio has been productive over his young career so far. Yeah, both. I mean, both of these guys, it's, it's a huge win. And like between those two trades, you've got three other guys who we don't know who they're going to be. They could still be really good prospects. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, we'll get to Miguel Castro trade here in a second, but when these trades keep coming out and it's like this player and this player is coming back to Baltimore, oh yeah, and cash considerations or another player to be named later. Like I, I don't know what these other teams think they're going to accomplish uh, this year with Tommy Malone in your starting rotation trying to take down the Phillies and even the Nationals lineup this year. But you know what? Michael Elias held out. He's getting his guys. Um, you know, I don't want to sit here and say Michael Elias is the perfect general manager. Uh, you know, all, None of these guys could end up panning out. But you know, at the same time, like I'm not betting any of my hard-earned money on Miguel Castro uh, to win us a ballgame at any point. And I'm probably the biggest Miguel Castro fan you will find. I'm not afraid to admit that. Uh, but still, like you were able to turn these guys into something. And again, uh, you got to commend him for what he did this weekend. Yeah. Elias has a plan, and he, he knows how to make the most of it. That's for sure. So Nick brought it up, and that's the trade that was made Monday, which sent Miguel Castro to the Mets in exchange for Kevin Smith, a left-hander who had success as a starter last year. Pitching primarily at high A, but he did get some time in double A as well with Binghamton and looked good there. He comes over in the trade along with a player to be named later. Uh, So the Orioles are going to get a little bit more for Castro in return than Smith. Um, This was a deal that went down kind of towards the right about the time of the deadline, maybe a little bit before it. Uh, We've kind of all done our digging on Smith a little bit. Uh, Based on some of the reports I've read, it seems like his... Ceiling is probably a back-of-the-rotation starter. His floor could be that of a reliever that's effective for multiple innings. So an intriguing pickup here. What do you think, Bob? Oh, my God. This was this might be the best trade of the whole trade deadline frenzy for me. I mean, when I saw Kevin Smith was coming back to the Orioles, first the thing I thought was, who was that? The second thing I thought was, who did we give up for this guy? It se- once I learned a little bit more about him, it seemed to me, okay, maybe it's a Severino, maybe it's it's someone a little, it's Cobb or something, but no, it was Miguel Castro, a guy who I wouldn't have cared if they released outright the past couple seasons before he started hot this year. Um, God, like Nick said, when you're trading a reliever, to get anything back is almost a plus, because relievers, I don't want to say a, are a dime a dozen these days, but I mean, it's not that hard, I feel like, for a competent organization to run into guys like Castro and find them off the scrap heap or through their system nowadays. So if you can get a guy who I've heard compared to as a Zach Lothar type with maybe better stuff, with less of a pitch mix, then that's outstanding. I mean, this is a guy who is going to be right there in AAA, AA next year. 
battling to come up, take a spot in the rotation, or at the very minimum, be a nice bullpen piece. Left-handed arm. You like the numbers. He strikes out a lot of batters. I, I just, I, I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw this trade come through the wire. Yeah, I had the same thing too. I said, wait, who's Kevin Smith, first of all? And then who are the Orioles giving up? I, I thought, are we giving up a prospect for this guy? Like, what what is Michael Elias doing here? Like, is this a deal to kick Keegan Aiken back out of the rotation and send him back to Bowie? Another Jorge Lopez type move? I don't know. But then, you know, like you said, this isn't someone who I don't think any of us have seen before. So, again, this is all of just us kind of last second scrambling here, reading as much as we can. But... I'm excited to watch him more. I love what I see. MLB Pipeline already put him at number 12, right behind Zach Lauther, and just ahead of Vavra. Uh, Mets minor league pitcher of the year last year. You look at a lot of these kind of Mets blogs and reputable Mets blogs and, and websites, and it, there's a lot of high praise for this kid. Um, it, it took him just over 100 innings to go from a pitcher at college or University of Georgia, where he was splitting time between the bullpen and the starting rotation, to now he's in double-A and pitcher of the year for the New York Mets minor league organization. I think that speaks volumes there. They converted him as full-time starter last year. It clearly worked. Uh, high strikeout guy. Uh, strikeouts did dip last year in double-A, and the walks went up, but his batting average against dropped 33 points, and that's only in six starts. But, you know, again, when you're 6'5", you got that deception. His delivery is fun to watch. Uh, all the scouting reports note his high spin fastball. Um, I think Mark Carrig of the, I think he's with the Athletic, uh, if I'm not mistaken there, but he tweeted, and I retweeted this on the BSL account, uh, that uh, Mets GM Brody uh, Van Wagenen had said that he viewed Kevin Smith as their number five starter moving forward. So you can get that from Miguel Castro, who went from on top of the world, leading the league in F4, to just bombing out here. Um, plus another player to be named later. Uh, again, that's another A plus move. I don't want to sit. I feel like I don't want to sit here and just give the Orioles all this super high praise about these trades. But like, who gives that up for Miguel Castro? Like, only the New York Mets. I feel like would do that. It's thank you, New York. Um, of course, they're going to come to Baltimore and beat us uh, this week. But that's you know what? That's fine because we got Kevin Smith. We'll we'll take you down in two three years with him. And to knowingly say, okay, this guy, I think he's really going to be a solid number five starter. Trade him for Miguel Castro. That's crazy to me. I mean, maybe they should expand the playoff field to 16 teams permanently if it's going to cause trade deadlines like this every year. I mean, this is fun. Yeah, I, I, I did find that a little bit odd. If you view Smith as a number five starter, and given that he made six starts at AA last year, probably would be in AAA right now if the minor league season were unfolding, maybe even in the major leagues. Why would you trade him for basically two years plus a month of Miguel Castro, assuming the Mets carry out Castro uh, to the end of his arbitration eligibility and into free agency? Because it's the Mets. <laughs> I don't know if they know what they're doing. Like You're not going to catch the Braves, even though they don't really have a lot of pitching when Tommy Malone's their third best starter. Like You're not going to catch the Braves. You're not going to catch the Phillies, I don't think. Don't count out the Nationals, because never count out the Nationals, apparently. like You're not going to win this division for a very long time but that's that's fine we can keep making deals with van wagon and i'm down with that i would be shocked if miguel castro makes it to free agency in a mets uniform i think he'll be non-tendered or or released or traded for nothing at some point in time unfortunately i mean i hope the best for the guy but i just don't see it long term yeah, yeah and there's a whole flux to the mets organization that you know with a, a possible sale who knows what's gonna how things are gonna look there in a year or two um, and that could have an effect as well. Um, 
I wanted to get into really what I thought was the strength of this deadline, what Michael Elias did. This was a seller's trade deadline, and we had had the question for pretty much since this 60-game season was announced. Are we going to see more teams buying at the deadline? Are we going to see more teams selling? Are we going to see more teams standing pat because they don't know what to make of a 30-game sample size any more than we do? Um, instead, what I think what you saw was a lot of teams who, in the course of a 162-game season, where they are with their records, you have the Reds at a few games under 500, who acted, who were out there as buyers today. The New York Mets, a few games under 500, and as Nick said, uh, have a really tough task getting to the top of that division. Um, they were buyers. So now you have these teams that, and even Colorado, uh, came into today 500. They trade for Michael Givens. I think Michael Elias capitalized on a seller's market at the trade deadline, realized that there were these fringe teams who haven't committed to a rebuild, but also haven't gone in, other than the Reds, who didn't trade with the Orioles. But I think in the case of the Rockies and the Mets, you feel like they haven't really gone all in in either direction yet. Um, and got pretty good leverage in his trades and made the most of it. Yeah, even the Marlins were buyers. They were buyers yeah. and sellers. I mean, they went out and, and got rid of Jonathan Villar. He's coming back to Toronto, or he's coming to Toronto, so back in the AL East, uh, which that was a pretty cool trade because I think they're sending Griffin Conine to Miami, so that'll, that'll be fun to watch. Um, I know some Orioles fans were up in arms a little bit over seeing that return for him, but you know what? Maybe East, was it Easton Lucas we got from him? Lucas Easton? I, I butcher that every single time. Maybe he turns out to something. I don't know, but um, I haven't been able to watch him pitch yet, but Marlins out there buying and selling. They trading Caleb Smith, uh, acquiring pieces. Um, you know, I I want to know what the Orioles, what the calls were like for Pedro Severino, if there were any calls, or if the Padres just kind of like I mentioned in my article, did they just ruin the catcher's market with that deal with the the uh, the Mariners? I, I don't really know what that deal was. Uh, that's AJ Preller just going all in, and and I'm here for it. I loved what the Padres did. But back to those those fringe teams, you even saw like the White Sox. They're now tied with the Indians for the lead uh, in the AL Central. So they're being buyers. Um, it was a fun deadline. I, I also agree that maybe we should extend these playoffs. Uh, I was totally against it, but now I don't know. If you're going to have teams like the Marlins and these uh, sub-500 teams go after it and give up three players for Miguel Castro-type players, let's do this every year. Did Major League Baseball look into the solution to tanking, <laughs> to solve tanking? But uh, I feel like if this was the Duquette era, the Dan Duquette era for the Orioles, right now we'd be saying, oh my goodness, thank God we went on a nice losing streak right before the deadline or else who knows what they would have done. But this year, to me, Elias, I feel like we this is the direction he was going no matter what. I, he's a guy that you can clearly tell is not going to let a fluky 30 games dictate what he does and change his direction. He's a guy that makes a plan, sticks with it, and executes it. And, yeah, I just think he's the perfect man for the job, especially at least during the rebuild portion. Maybe it would, time will tell if he's able to do the opposite in a couple of years when it's ready to you know, buy a starting pitcher at the deadline or sign. Can he get the Angelos ownership to allow him to sign a guy to a big contract? That it remains to be seen. But as of right now, you just can't ask for a better guy to lead the charge right now. Yeah, and at some point in the coming months, we're going to go back over our top 30 prospects list and update it. And I feel like now 
that maybe 10 to 30, or depending on how high you are on Terra and Vavra, maybe 7 or 8 to 30, uh, gets a lot more interesting after the trade deadline and could potentially uh, get added towards the bottom with the players to be named later. Um, so overall, I was really happy with the way that the Orioles went about this. Yeah, um, the Severino thing, I mean, keeping him is fine uh, for a little bit longer. I don't know what the market was there. I don't know. I don't I don't think there was a market for Jose Iglesias. I think a lot of people may be wondering why he's still on the team. I'm fine with keeping him around. You know, there's really no one that's going to battle him. I love Mason McCoy, but he's not the guy. Richie Martin is is a fun guy to watch at times, but I don't think he's the guy either. So, you know, we got to wait for like the Jordan Westbergs and stuff to come up. So, I'm fine with keeping Iglesias. He's a lot of fun to watch. Um I wonder if maybe the Red Sox were able to trade Josh Osich. Like, come on. Like, did Paul, could Paul Fry have been moved? I don't know. Um, I'm sure if Mike Lyles could have made more deals, he would have. Uh, but, you know, we were able to trade a lot of pieces that aren't going to be part of the future. So there we go. And we got guys who might be. This farm system is improving. It's, the draft was only five rounds. Mike Elias made this farm system better in those five rounds. He didn't have too much to work with at the trade deadline, uh, but he made the farm system better. So that's all you can do. Yeah, and Iglesias is a guy that I wanted him to stick around. He's an easy choice to pick up his option for next year. He's given you, when his leg is healthy, he's given you great defense up the middle in an important position. Clearly, at least this year, he can hit over 400. Uh, obviously not going to be that guy forever, but he's just a great glove to have for young pitchers coming up. And I don't think his value is going to be diminished anymore around the trade deadline next year. So you can easily flip him then. So yeah, happy with that. As far as guys like Severino, Alberto, Fry, Tanner Scott, I think Elias is a guy that he looks at the team control that they have left and he knows, you know, they still have value to us right now and they'll have value to other teams next year or the year after that in the off season. Just like we saw him do with Michael Givens. He's not going to trade a guy just to trade a guy. He's going to make sure he you know, gets the most value that he can. And if not, then he'll let him keep building on that value and flip him when the time is right. Yeah, and I think with, by holding on to Severino, you do secure that bridge to Adley Rutzman a little bit more. And not necessarily you're going to hold on to Severino just to do that. But I think even if his offense dips a little bit next year, which it probably will, there's still probably a market for him. And if San Francisco continues to make strides with the bat, he might be a guy that has some value as a trade piece. If you're looking uh, to bring Rutzman up sometime late next year or maybe planning ahead a little bit so that he's on the roster in early 2022. Um, we talked about Alex Cobb a lot last week. Um, it's kind of the lead-up to the trade deadline. Would he go? Ultimately, he's still in Oriole. Uh, were either one of you surprised by that? No, I, I wasn't too surprised. I didn't think... Teams aren't going to want to add all that money. Very few teams are. I don't think the Yankees made a trade, and I think that was the one that made a lot of sense. Um, a lot of teams that didn't make trades or make big trades. It's kind of surprising, but that's a lot of money. I don't think really the Orioles were offering to eat too much money. I know there are some reports out there that they were, but you wonder how much money uh, they were truly going to eat. Um, 
but and I'm fine with keeping Cobb just because if he can continue to pitch like he has, he's been pretty lucky, I think. You see a lot of the uh, tweets come out saying this is probably one of the luckiest pitchers in all of baseball uh, when you really look at like his baseball savant numbers and such. So I'm fine with letting him continue to, to build himself up, uh, pitch out the rest of this year, hope he, he pitches well, and then go into the offseason looking to move him when, when you realize that next year you've got about I don't know, 10 to 15 guys competing for that starting rotation. Uh, maybe you can get a little bit more out of him next year after teams see five or six more starts out of him for the remainder of 2020, and he's still healthy. Yeah, I completely agree with Nick here. I'm not really surprised because, like you said, his baseball savant numbers are kind of all in the blue, which is not a good thing. His his strict, you know, fantasy baseball numbers are are decent, and he he does a good job taking the ball every fifth day and eating some innings. But he's not a guy that guys uh, teams are going to be clamoring for. And just like before, I think Elias knows that his trade value is going to be the same today as it will be in the off season as it will be next trade deadline. So now let him mentor some of these guys, give us some innings, and we'll trade him down the line. Yeah, that's kind of where I am, too. I think that I, I would not have ruled out Cobb going, but I thought the field might be kind of limited because you either are looking for a team that was going to take on most, if not all, of that contract or that was willing to give you more in return in terms of prospects if the Orioles assumed most of the contract. That's personally the strategy that I hope they take when the time does come to trade Cobb, but that's a separate discussion. Um to me, the starting pitching market overall kind of took some turns. Mike Clevenger went to the Padres in a massive trade, yet Lance Lynn is still a Texas Ranger, which I don't think anybody saw coming uh, a week ago. And Dylan Bundy is still an angel. Yeah. I think that was the one that shocked me the most. And um, Yeah, I, I I think the Texas Ranger ordered way too much for Lance Lynn. That's why he's still there. Uh, I don't know why Dylan Bundy is still an angel. They moved, I think, an outfielder, Brian Goodwin, at the last minute, but that, that was kind of shocking. But, yeah, I, I just don't think that market was there. And that Padres trade was for Clevenger was another. The Indians are now pretty much their entire roster are just spare parts and backups from the San Diego Padres. Like <laughs> The San Diego Padres, who have uh, one of the worst teams in baseball over the years, are now trading away all their spare parts for Mike Clevenger and the Austin Nolas, and, and it's just... I, that's why I stay up until 1 a.m. most nights watching the Padres because, good Lord, A.J. Preller, man, that's that's the guy. Yeah, you love to be a Padres fan right now. What a fun team to watch. And this is what we want Elias to do when he talks about building up the talent pipeline is so you can do moves like this where you trade half of your you know, minor league system and still keep eight of your top ten prospects and come away with some really talented major <laughs> leaguers. Uh, yeah. Mackenzie yeah, Gore, Luis Patino, <clears throat> Camposado, like I think eight eight or nine of their top ten prospects are still in the system. And you see what they were able to achieve. That's that's amazing. And like it, it could be coming. I think Brian when they had Brian Roberts on the broadcast today, I really liked what he said. It's something that I've said on the boards before. It's something I said in my articles that keep stockpiling these middle infielders, keep stockpiling all these talented players up the middle, which is what Michael Ice is targeting. And then you either find a new home for him. You mentioned Michael Gibbons was a shortstop. Adam Jones was a shortstop. You'll find a position for them or you send them off uh, elsewhere at these deadlines and bring in the talent. Um, you know, I, I think just overall, looking at here on, on Twitter right now, and Ben McDonald just tweeted, 
Um, so you know it's going to be good. But he, I think this sums up pretty well. He says, Michael is doing his thing with the Orioles. I feel like I'm watching the Cajun chef prepare the perfect gumbo. There's a lot that goes in the pot, and sometimes you don't always understand why. But when it's finished, it's worth the wait. I think that sums it up perfectly. Hey, I agree. <laughs> Before we move on from the deadline talk, there's one point about Taron Vavra I wanted to circle back to. From having been around the South Atlantic League for a lot of years, um, I know that Asheville, which is where Vavra was, um, McCormick Field, which is where the Asheville tourists play, has a well-earned and well-documented reputation as a hitter's park. Uh, Vavra hit eight of his ten home runs there last year. His OPS was 1.124 at home compared to 636 on the road. Does that give either one of you pause? I mean, it he, he doesn't have a lot of time down in the minor leagues. So I, I'm going to say, for right now, no. Um, I, again, I really like, like Bob mentioned, with Rockies and their prospects, I, I don't know. I, I know a guy pretty well who the Rockies drafted about two, three years ago. And I mean, just the slightest twinge in his arm and, and they cut him and they just let him go um, and moved on from him. Um, and from his point of view, there was a pretty sour taste in his mouth from that move. And he had some not so pleasant things to say about some of their developmental uh, processes. And, you know, that's a minor leader getting cut. So of course, take that with a grain of salt. But, you know, when you think of these top prospects across the league, you don't really see a lot of Rockies prospects. Uh, so maybe with the Orioles, what they're doing down in Bowie, what they're doing in this player development system now with Michael Elias, Sigmaidel, and everybody in charge, um, I, I'm going to go ahead and just wait and see what he does in, in Bowie or Norfolk next year. It is an interesting fact, but I can't worry too much because it's just like the I don't know if it's a situation where like in Colorado with major league level with the Rockies where they have that big disparity in between their home and road splits, not necessarily because Colorado is so good to hit at, which it is, but because to go from the different elevation levels, it takes time to get caught up and used to that. And by the time you're used to it, you're back into another park or back home again. So yeah, I'm like, Nick, I'll wait and see how it plays out. But it is interesting, you know, keep an eye on it for sure. But it's hard for me to get too caught up in that right now. Yeah, that's kind of where I was because I, I looked up those numbers before the show and and I went back and forth with it. But ultimately, I still feel like when you look at the walk rate, when you look at the other factors, even the Vabra's power, if we don't see much of his power at the higher levels of the minor leagues, I feel like everything else is still going to click. And as Bob made the point in discussing both him and Nevin, I'm really intrigued to see if we hear anything about what they work on with these guys at Bowie and prepare them because... To me, both of them are, Nevin for, for sure should be a triple A next year. Vavra, in my mind, could start the year at double A, but depending on how he develops over the rest of the summer, maybe there's an argument for pushing him higher. But I, I kind of put the home road splits in that, like, follow this away, keep an eye on it, but I don't see it as a major pause. And I read a, enough reports. I read the MLB.com report. I read the Fangrass report, which was pretty high on Vavra, and I, I don't think it's going to be too big of a concern going forward yeah i agree so we're looking now at the major league roster and the continuing uh emergence of ryan mountcastle who hit two home runs on sunday at buffalo against the blue jays the first home run i don't think has landed yet (laughs) uh i've watched that clip several times and i'm just impressed every time at just how far that ball goes out to left center field he had a second home run later in the game 
Uh, he really continues to hit the ball well in his uh, initial run in the major leagues. Uh, Bob, what did your what was your takeaway from Mountcastle's performance over the past week, really, and particularly over the weekend? Honestly, Sunday kind of blew me away. It was not just the two home runs that he launched on like 100 and some miles an hour. It's more that in between that, he slapped a 100-mile-an-hour single to opposite field, which to me that's incredibly, incredibly impressive to be able to have both approaches in the same game. Like, yeah, if he was feeling it, I could see him, you know, cranking some homers out to left field. But to be able to pull a ball a million miles into the highway in Buffalo, then have a nice piece of hitting opposite way, just going with the ball, and then cranking another mistake pitch the next time out, that was just... That was great to see, and I, I just love how you can tell he's not too intimidated at the major league level. He he came into this completely prepared and confident, but also, like, it seems like whenever he swings and fouls a pitch off, he's shaking his head. He's like, damn, I missed that one. You know, should have got it. Like, I don't know. I was just really impressed by his demeanor and the way he the way he is out there, and even today in the outfield, he made an outstanding catch in left field on a ball he had to leap for. Uh, I don't know exactly what his, you know, first step was like if he moved in and had to move out, but it was hit on a line and I think it had an 850 expected batting average and he went and got it. So maybe he really was working on his defense and uh, on base skills while he was in Bowie. It, it was good. Yeah, that was good to, to know. I, I meant to go back and look at that, what the expected batting average on that play was because I, I missed the play, but I saw the replay and was astounded. Ryan Malcastle does have a position, and he does play defense. What do you know? Um, yeah, the the singles, and he did it again today. He had an opposite field single where he shoots it in between first and second base. You love to see that. On Sunday, 104.1 miles an hour, 101.5 miles an hour, and 100.1 miles per hour off the bat in his three hits. Um, you really love what he's doing. I, I do. I get the sense that Mountcastle is, and I'm going to give a, a shout-out to, to the guys at the Bird's Eye View um, uh, podcast when they talked about Mountcastle and I believe it was them that uh, kind of uh, comped him to a Trey Mancini type player and, and I think that's really good uh, comparison there for the type of player that we can expect to see out of Ryan Mountcastle he's he may not be a multi-time all-star uh, at the major league level but I think he's gonna be a really solid player and, and if he can once the league starts to figure him out I think that demeanor I think his attitude at the plate I think just his personality uh, on and off the field that you see, you see glimpses of it. I think he's someone who is capable of stepping up and becoming a leader on this team, both on and off the field. Uh, You really see that in him. And we've mentioned before how he's been so young at every level and and he's uh, produced. And he's doing that now at the big league. He's settling in very well, very quickly. Um, 457 on base percentage. Uh, so apparently he can't walk, but yeah, he is uh, a 1.102 OPS sending rockets the other way onto highways. You see the two strike approach at the plate. Um, again, it, it's an ideal start. Can he go one for 30 at some point this year? He might, I don't know, but, uh, with this approach at the plate, I don't think that's, that's going to happen. Um, he's settling in very well and, and taking it to, he looks like a major leaguer. I think he doesn't look phased by this, by this jump to the big leagues, which is good. Yeah, the plate approach has really been the encouraging thing for me. I feel like he's not chasing pitches the way that he did in the minor leagues. And I think what that's going to lead to over time, and you know, hopefully this allows him to finish the year strong, the more the book starts to get out there is the feeling, okay, you can't just throw change-ups and sliders away and get him to chase. Uh, a year or two ago, maybe that would have been the case, but 
right now he's locked in. He's not chasing those things. And if you're able to do that, you're going to leave pitchers prone to making more mistakes. Absolutely. And he had an at-bat today. I think it was his first one where he worked to count full. And then there was a ball that was maybe an inch or two outside. Clearly a ball, but it was relatively close. He swung and missed, but you could just tell from his reaction that he was kicking himself like, oh, that was definitely outside. Like you can just see that he wants to get better and he is working on it. Like he's not just, you know, up there hacking away. He really is working at it, trying to work the counts. And he's done a surprisingly good job of it. Yeah. While continuing to learn a brand new position again, I think that's something else too that doesn't get mentioned enough that they've moved him from shortstop to third base, first base to left field. And you see the numbers he put up. It doesn't phase him. Uh, not a lot seems to phase this kid, and I really enjoy that. And I hope that I'm not. I don't really like watching like the post game stuff, the post game interviews. I, I I respect the beat writers' jobs. I respect reporters' jobs. Um, yeah, but the questions are, are the same questions. They're so boring. The responses are so boring. Very rarely do you get that notable soundbite. But I have watched Ryan, a few of Ryan Mountcastle when they have him on, and it's fun to listen to him talk. I think you see the the beginnings there of he's getting more comfortable, and hopefully, I, I want to see you know that personality now start to come out. You, you don't see a lot of personality on this Orioles teams uh, recently, and so that would be fun to watch as we watch him hit twenty twenty five home runs a year at the big league level. He does seem to have fun out there. So if him and Alberto can get a rapport going, that could be fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this Orioles team in Mountcastle has added to this. Even when they lose, they're still fun to watch. And that's one thing that I can say going back to 2017. Sometimes those teams will win and they still weren't fun to watch. Um, you know, the last three years were have, have been kind of rough. But this year when I watch an Orioles game, I feel like even if they lose, you can tell they're having fun, they're playing hard, and Mountcastle fits right in with that. Yeah, definitely. So one big item to note from Monday, the first career start for Keegan Aiken. He started the game as the Orioles took on the Blue Jays in a matinee. Uh, ended with the Orioles winning 4-3 to three in 11 innings. Um, Aiken went 4 and a third, three hits, two runs. Neither of them were earned because they scored on a throwing error by Hondra Alberto. And although those runs were charged by, to Aiken, uh, it was after Travis Lakin Sr. came in the game and gave up both inherited runs. Uh, Aiken walks to strikes out six. Um, it seems to me like with two lefties that had been in the rotation all year, Wade LeBlanc, who's now uh, down to injury, and Tommy Malone, who was just traded to the Braves, that should give Aiken a leg up in terms of getting starts for the rest of the year. And I don't think he did anything today to necessarily throw the Orioles off that track if they were thinking along those lines, but... Uh, Nick, what was your impression of Aiken? Yeah, it, you would think he's going to stay in the starting rotation, but who knows? As rosters start to settle over the next day or so, maybe someone interesting hits the waiver wire and uh, Aiken's back down to Bowie. But I thought it was a great start. Um, like you said, no earned runs. The six strikeouts, his first at bat, those that first inning was really good. That first batter, fastball, 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 hitting 94 right on the paint. I mean, he came out strong and determined. Uh, I think he hit 95.5 miles an hour. He topped out with his fastball. He threw a lot of change-ups. That was the pitch that he was working on a lot last year uh, in AAA Norfolk. Got some, a few swing and misses there. Um, 
there were a few where it missed. He missed low with the pitch a lot, but I think that's where he wanted to throw it. I think that's where Severino wanted it thrown. You saw his reaction with a lot of those pitches where he got very animated, uh, pounding the glove, pointing at Keegan Aiken like that. That was your pitch. That was it. That was where I wanted it. Great job. Uh, he just didn't get the guy to swing. Maybe that comes uh, as he's able to attack guys more with the fastball uh, and get more confident, stop nibbling so much, and, and just uh, go after an attack hitter's. I like the confidence he had in that outing, although, I mean, I've I've seen Aiken so many times over the years. I've met him two or three times and talked to him personally, and it's just, he's stone-faced. You, you don't know what he's thinking. I think every time you see him, he's thinking, I want to get out of this conversation and leave, but um, he's not going to show you that emotion on the mound, and he showed that today. He even got a pickoff at second base, which is great to see. Um Again, he's still someone that I think we question, is he a starter, is he a reliever? I don't know. I think the stuff will really play up out of the bullpen. But for a first career start, it was really good, and we need to see more of it moving forward. Yeah, I was very encouraged by the by the start today. Maybe the final stat line didn't tell the whole story, but, man, he came out of the gates throwing strikes, peppering his fastball wherever he wanted, touching 95. I mean, he was he was just pounding the zone. And he might have faded out by the fourth or fifth inning, you know, getting a little bit tired. Maybe he's not built up enough, but I think he definitely showed enough stuff that he's in the rotation for the remainder of the season. He better be. I mean, he that was a great Blue Jays lineup, and he pretty much shut them down. Um, you know, besides a Hanser Alberto error leading to two unearned runs, he's he's, you know, got a clean outing on the day. So... Yeah, very encouraged. Hope we see more and hope we see other guys like Kramer, et cetera, et cetera, come up at the last month of the season and show what they can do too. Yeah, Aiken, I feel like now has had two outings where the final results maybe didn't tell the full story. Um, His first outing back on August 14th came in relief against the Nationals. Probably was out there one inning too long. Um, A few inherited runs scored after he was lifted from the game. Uh, He pitched one-third of an inning down in Tampa Bay last week, and then today against the Blue Jays um, was pretty solid through four innings and then hit a little bit of a wall in the fifth before getting removed, and then the two runs scored on the error by Alberto. But I think the Orioles just got to try to find a way to keep him in the rotation and stretch him out because while you you do have some concerns about how is he working through the lineup the second time around, you're not going to see that improve if you have him come out of the bullpen for an inning at a time for the next month. That That's not going to happen. And now, to me, the Orioles have kind of signaled that the focus is still in the rebuild. Um, part of that should be to let Aiken get starts regularly over the final month of the season. Yeah, how about let him get into a regular routine, go out there every five days and settle in instead of having him come up, sit on, sit in the bullpen for six days, pitch a couple innings, Get sent down, come up, pitch to one batter, get sent back down. He he just needs to get out there every fifth day and just show what show what he's capable of. Yeah, I I hate that they're doing and this isn't the normal, you know, you get sent down, you go back to Norfolk, that Norfolk Baltimore Express shuttle. It's it's not that, but it's still like I think of like Kevin Gossman. Uh, when he was coming up, he would come up for a few starts and then he's back in Norfolk uh, for a couple of weeks and he's up and he's down, he's up and he's down. Chance Cisco, the same thing. Just keep this guy on the major league roster and let's see what he can do. Uh, I know that, you know, 
I, I trust what they're doing on a buoy, and the reports are great when we get those few looks inside a buoy from you know guys like John Muley and the guys over at Masson. Uh, it's great to see what they're doing, and clearly it's doing something great with Ryan Mountcastle. But you know, it's uh, Keegan Aiken, as we mentioned before, he's just a guy that I don't know how much more you can develop him. You, it's sink or swim for Aiken, and right now he, he's holding water, he's treading water pretty well right now, and so hopefully he can get. You're looking at what maybe five starts if they keep him in the rotation. Uh, I, I think that's good. And let's see if he can go those hit those five innings and give up, you know, no more than one or two runs, keep the strikeouts up and keep the walks low. So uh, he, he did have two walks today, but uh, I'm only going to credit him with one. Uh, that first walk was definitely, he got squeezed a few times there. So, Yeah, I, I think for me, the big thing is try to work through five innings over the, you know, his last, as Nick said, I think it'd be about five starts for the Orioles, keep him in the rotation the whole time. Uh, Try to get him to the point where he can work through five innings, have him mix in the chains up a little bit more, and really have him attack the zone. That Even if the ball is getting put in play, you see the walks drop a little bit. I think if you can do that over the last month, that really sets him up well going into next year. And he's got the defense behind him. He's, he's still got Iglesias behind him. You've got uh, Gold Glover, Ryan Mountcastle in left field behind him. So you're, you're good. He should be able to feel pretty comfortable. Yeah, that, that is one good point, which is that in the process of this trade deadline, the Orioles um, didn't really move their position players and therefore didn't weaken the defense any. So there are still some guys behind Aiken and behind the other pitchers on the staff that they should feel good about, um, especially up the middle with Iglesias at short and then either Cedric Mullins or Austin Hayes in center. Yeah, just, just keep Pat Vileko off the <laughs> yeah. field. Yeah, yeah I, would have, I think it was Joe Trezza pointed out, and I didn't go back and look at this, about you know small sample size so it's harder to get those defensive metrics and numbers uh but he was like look it's bad and the defense has been bad this year but i, I wonder what the numbers look like if you take pat valeka out of this uh, i think the numbers are, and renato nunez out of this yeah take those two guys out of the field and it's not a half bat defense i, I don't think cedric mullins is playing very well out in center field uh santander of course has, has had a few mistakes but you know he's played respectable outfield um Austin Hayes was great while he was was here. It's just gotta dump Valeka somehow. I'm, I don't ever want to see him or Cole Sulcer on the field again. So, <laughs> uh, I think Valeka could be a decent last man on your bench. That could be a pinch hitter, and Sulcer could be a decent fifth or sixth inning guy. But I hear you. I hear you. Not shortstop. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Not shortstop. Yeah, the, I definitely miss Jose Iglesias when he was not at shortstop and. You know, now that the Orioles have traded two of their late-inning guys, um, I'm curious to see how Brandon Hyde uses the bullpen the rest of the year. With that said, though, uh, he still has Paul Fry. He still has Tanner Scott. Uh, he's got Hunter Harvey back now. He's got Dylan Tate back. So there's still some good arms down the bullpen. Yeah. Yep. And it's more interesting uh, back into the bullpen for us prospect people than it was before, at least. Young guys. Yeah, completely agree. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've given a good recap of the trade deadline. We all three like the moves that Michael Elias made. Uh, certainly helped improve the farm system, kind of further the rebuild. Uh, Ryan Mountcastle continues to impress. And Keegan Aiken, you know, turned in a, a pretty respectable outing against the Blues A's on Monday. We're hoping he can build off of that. Uh, before we sign off, I'll give Nick and Bob, starting with Nick, a chance. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think just enjoy these last few weeks. We're over halfway towards the finish line here already. Um, 
Keep enjoying Ryan Mountcastle. Hopefully Aiken stays in rotation. I think you mentioned Dylan Tate, and I did. I really enjoyed watching Dylan Tate pitch. Um, I'm glad that he's healthy and he's back on the mound. You've seen him in four outings already. He's got nine strikeouts, uh, three hits, and almost nine innings of work. He's got a 111 batting average against and a 0.81 whip. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who I was really excited about uh, after a full offseason of being able to work out of the bullpen and see what he can do. You had the injuries. I thought that would probably affect him a lot, but it's clearly not. So, um, you know, the Orioles got rid of some pieces, all great moves, but there's still some exciting pieces left on this roster for fans to watch and, and develop over the final 20-plus games. Yep, that's a good point. And I would just like to say now that the trade deadline has passed, hopefully we start to see some more Major League debuts trickle in over throughout September. Give the fans something to look forward to at least once a week, maybe. I don't know. But uh, also, it was exciting to see Cesar or Cesar Valdez out there, 36 years old, I think, and just making hitters look stupid with his changeup. It's just nasty. Drops off the table. And just a cool story to see where he came from and how the Orioles were the only team that even gave him a call in the offseason. And now he's getting outs at the major league level. Yeah, he certainly has been a nice addition. I'm interested to see what Valdez does. Um, over the last month of the season. Um, the thing that impressed me with Dylan Tate today is that Brandon Hyde went to him with two outs in the seventh in a tied game. That's a spot where just three or four days ago we may have seen Michael Gibbons or Miguel Castro come in. Uh, he went to Tate in what was very much a high-leverage situation. Tate gets out of that inning, contributes another two scoreless innings. Um, if the Orioles get that or even a, a portion of that from Dylan Tate for the rest of the year, uh, their bullpen's going to be pretty good going forward. Yep. Excited to see it all happen. Yep. And um, so that just about does it for us this week. Um, we'll be back next next week with a new show. In the meantime, continue to check Baltimore Sports and Life for the latest, latest content, uh, primarily Orioles and Ravens, but then some college sports as well. As I noted, Bob and Nick both have new pieces on the site. You should check them out. And continue to follow us on Twitter at, at BSL on the Verge. Uh, we'll have episodes posted there along with uh, in-game commentary and more. Uh, for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. Thank you for listening to the Verge. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.